This episode of Unbeatable, I'm going to invite you into a conversation that I had the privilege of hearing just a few years ago. And to be honest with you, when I heard it for the first time, I remember thinking to myself, there's no way this absolutely could not have happened because what I'm hearing from these children of these two soldiers never, ever, ever happens. I want you to hear a conversation between Don Malarkey's daughter, a paratrooper from the Band of Brothers in World War II, and Fritz Engelbert's sons, a German soldier who was on the other side of the Battle of the Bulge as they fought against one another in World War II. It's not the battle. It's not the bullets that are going to blow your mind. What will blow you away is what happens 60 years after the battle. Stay tuned for the Saving My Enemy conversation on this episode of Unbeatable. Before I get into this incredible, amazing conversation with these three, I want to remind you about the Solomon Foundation. These folks are committed to helping the local church grow, and if you will partner with them. They're going to give you an excellent return while you make an eternal impact. So if what I'm saying sounds interesting to you, why don't you go check them out at thesolomonfoundation.org. And now let me turn things over to Matthias, Volker, and Marianne as they describe what happened with their fathers 60 years after the Battle of the Bulge. Check it out. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable. Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining me from all over the world for this very special episode of Unbeatable. Marianne, thanks for tuning in all the way from Oregon, from the Portland area. Is that right? Yep. We're an hour south of Portland, Salem. Yeah, and Matthias and Volker, you're joining us from Germany. Can you give the listeners, some of them who live in Europe, a general idea of where your homes are in Germany? Um, now we are talking, uh, you watch us in uh, Bonn on the Rhine. Okay. Uh, south of Cologne. Um, that's, we are sitting now in my home and Volker is just, Five minutes. Yeah, three miles away or so. Down the river, uh, down the river, five minutes uh, towards Cologne. Uh, that's where Volker. Yeah. So we live close, close, close together. together. Yeah. Yeah. Well, when the guests start to learn a little bit about your father, a lot of what they're going to hear today, especially anyone familiar with the military, is going to sound very familiar. Um, I want to give a lot of credit before we even get into the conversation today to Andreas Reinhardt, who is the, the reason why I had a chance to meet the three of you in person. Andreas, if you're watching this episode, you're awesome. Thank you for connecting all of us in Switzerland a few years back. Um, guys, you're fathers both took part in one of the most brutal and one of the biggest military operations of all times. 
your fathers took part in Operation Overlord or the D-Day invasion on opposite sides of the war, Germany and the United States, and your fathers were both not individually, but uh, very well depicted in the miniseries um, Band of Brothers. Of course, Marianne, your father, Don Malarkey, was very well depicted throughout the entire miniseries. Um, but Matthias Volker, your father, Fritz, was depicted just not by name in this miniseries. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to stop talking in just a second, and I'm going to let you guys describe what I had the privilege of hearing firsthand from both of you. When your fathers reconnected years later after the D-Day invasion was over with, but in order for people to hear just how incredible that interaction was and really how life transforming it was, let's talk a little bit about your father, uh, Matthias Volker, either one of you. What was he doing before the uh, Western Front developed? What was he doing before he ended up in the army? Um. And so our, our grandfather, uh, grandparents had a guest house in the little town where we were born, uh, Hilchenbach. And so he, he was helping out in the guest house. Uh, my grandma, our grandmother was cooking and, uh, our grandfather did the, uh, service and, uh, uh, so the preparation. So they were running a guest house and, uh, and a pub, let's say. And our dad, Fritz, was helping but he was uh, he went to school and he was um, on a we call that höhere Handelsschule so he was ready to to become uh, a merchant and he he was he learned uh, languages uh, Spanish and English on that höhere Handelsschule so he really wanted to become um, he wasn't keen on taking over the uh, the pub and the guest house so he was really a little bit reluctant and he he would have loved to become a lawyer or study uh, yeah. jurisdiction that was would have been his dream but um, I think the compromise uh, with his parents was you get a, a real education as a, as a merchant then you can take over the the guest house but uh, forget about becoming becoming a lawyer but uh, so our dad was born in 25 so when when Hitler and the Nazis took over, he was he was eight, and he never heard anything else than uh, the Nazi propaganda and right. and being an only child. He always wanted to be, yeah, let's say part part of a group and yeah. uh, belong to a group, and so he couldn't wait to become a, a Hitler Junge, and uh, uh, that was um, not what uh, our grandparents wished. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, especially our grandfather, so Fritz's father, he was a social democrat and he was so against Hitler and the Nazis, but he couldn't do anything. Yeah. They couldn't prevent yeah. their son or keep keep their son. He was just, um, I don't know, indoctrinated yeah. by by the brown shirts, by the Nazis, yeah. and uh, so that was the path he was he was following and. Um, so he ended up becoming a soldier in uh, August 43. That was when he was uh, 18. And he couldn't wait to become a soldier because he, 
really thought uh, he was he would be fighting for a good cause, and uh, he didn't know any better at that time. Although his parents said, "My grandfather, yeah, he, our grandfather always said Hitler will lead us into uh, uh, what to say uh, misery, misery, misery and, will, and, and destruction. Everything and, will become worse, and uh, that's yeah. a great problem for, yeah. for Germany." But he couldn't say it loud because you know if you say something like this, so they take you and put you into a concentration camp. Right. So mm -hmm. it was a. A, a yeah. permanent quarrel between my father and my grandfather because they always argued against each yeah. other. And um, the thing about the, the the thing with the with the Jewish neighbor, yeah, 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 my, Jewish, my yeah. grandfather had a Jewish neighbor, a butcher, who was uh, his family emigrated to the USA. And now he, live in Kansas. Yeah, and and he, he, he stayed. Yeah. He stayed, and uh, he had to close his shop and couldn't. Right. Do something for yeah. a living, and so at night or in the evening, when it was dark, he came to my grandfather's house, and he gave him food and and supported him and, and, and cigarettes. And cigarettes, and, and, and my father was upset. Why do you feel that Jew? And so that that was a, a real, real problem. Normally, he must he must have reported my grandfather. He did not, but I think he was in a. He, was, in a, in, he was really yeah. in in trouble yeah. because he yeah. thought I. The party, the NSDAP, the Nazi party said, you have to report your own parents, yeah. but um, he just couldn't do that. But but officially, it would have been his duty to report my parents' support, right. a, Jew, a Jewish neighbor. And uh, so that was really a horrible situation, yeah. horrible times. But uh, luckily... He didn't report yeah. that, but yeah. uh, so Selig Manhoni was his name, and and our, our um, grandfather and he, they were friends. They were both businessmen. Let's say one was running a guest house, and the other was one of the butchers in town. So they they stayed close, but it was it was difficult. Not during the daytime. Yeah. You describe, thank you, by the way, for describing what life was like in Germany before September of 1939 and the invasion of Poland, because there was this groundswell of movement, and especially with the youth of Germany behind Hitler. By the time that um, World War One or World War Two officially starts, the invasion of Poland, September 1939, at this point, there's a massive military, but after the invasion of Poland, it's not really an option anymore. If you're of fighting age, you're going to serve in the military or you're going to prison or you very well may die, um, which is where your father finds himself. Now, he volunteered and went willingly. It wasn't unwilling that he went. But when did he actually end up in France um, as part of the occupation? During World War II, what time frame was this? So I think you you became a soldier in August '43, and the basic training was in still in Germany. But then I think he was sent to Brittany. Brittany to Pontarlier was in in spring of '44 yeah. because uh, Rommel and the the German soldiers were afraid the Allied troops would. Would someday come and, and uh, invade the the Brit the Brit uh, the coast in Brittany, and so he was in uh, in, in a town near um, 
Mont Saint Michel. Yeah, you can see Mont Saint Michel behind. Yeah. And he he did um, he he helped to uh, build up fortifications. The they uh, what you saw later uh, these bunkers and uh, bunkers and the, the things they put on the yeah. beaches to the minefields. The minefields. Uh, so he was. The Germans called it Atlantic Wall. Atlantic yeah. Wall. The Atlantic Wall. Atlantic sure. Builders, uh, mm -hmm. So that yeah. was. For, for a few months, he was there in, in Brittany, and I think when uh, when the invasion happened on D-Day, yeah. that was when he was already, he had been with his unit sent back to Germany, and maybe for a re, re how do you call that, reorganization. Yeah. Um, but uh, then when, when uh, after he, June 6th, he was among uh, the troops that were were sent yeah. to France to fight against uh, right. Allied troops, but uh, uh, we have one photo where he, I think they traveled for two weeks in a in a carriage uh, in an open from Germany to from, France to yeah. France, and they yeah. they made a stop in Versailles. Yeah. So there's a, a photo of him and, and seven comrades, eight comrades yeah. standing in front of the castle of famous castle that, that was of, in, of Versailles in July, yeah. in, 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 August, in August, in August, short before August, in August, August. it was shortly before uh, Paris was was free, uh, no. was liberated, huh? and they were they were still sent further north to Argentan. Um, so that was the the closest that he ever got to the Allied troops. Advancing towards the west, I think on on uh, August 14th, he he arrived and he reached the the units in uh, Argentan. And at that time, he was was he already a part of the Panzerlehr Division. Yeah, yeah. They were yeah. among those yeah. who tried to stop the Allies from moving uh, further to the to the west. Yeah. But from that day on, he always said it was only a retreat. Yeah. <laughs> Every day, yeah. so he, yeah. that was uh, didn't didn't change until December. Then, when the Ardennen Offensive, mm. when that started, but till then, around Paris, and yeah. so that was always yeah. they couldn't stop, yeah. they couldn't do anything, and just uh, try to save their lives and yeah. and, and uh, go back towards the east, towards Germany. Yeah, I want to describe for the listeners what the situation was like in Germany, 1938, all the way through 44. You guys have described that. I also want to point out, most military historians will tell you that your father served under one of the most brilliant military minds of all times, Erwin Rommel. Um, but I want to turn the conversation over to Marianne for just a few minutes. Let's talk about your father and how he ended up in the United States Army. Again, at this point in US history, almost everybody who was able to serve did, and many guys who weren't able to serve thought that their life was worthless and literally took their own lives because they felt ashamed of not serving. When did Don end up in the um, American military? When did he end up in the army as a paratrooper in Easy Company? Um, of the hundred of, of the five oh six of the hundred first. So when he um, when Pearl Harbor happened, he was at the University of Oregon, which is in Eugene, and uh, of course they all heard that there had been a bombing over there, and and he definitely felt the draw to go and actually 
be to, to volunteer to go into the service. And so he, he tried to get into the uh, Navy, the Marines. He could not get into either. Um, He was able to get into the army. And so that's when he enlisted into the army and he was um, uh, then after, after that, he was able to go uh, home really quickly gather some things, say, say goodbye to his family. And then he was off to go up to Fort Lewis, which is north of us in Washington. And that's where he ended up finding out about the paratroopers. And he had read an article in Life magazine about the paratroopers. And he knew that it was experimental, but to him, it Mm -hmm. sounded really cool. You know, that it was, it was, you know, he heard that paratroopers were, uh, sir, they were, they were, um, kind of going to have it easy. They, they weren't going to have the life that the men who fought, you know, combat face to face. And so he kind of, kind of had a different, uh, idea of what it was going to be and what it ended up being. But he says in a video that I have that he would do it all over again. He would not choose to, to take the easy route at, you know, any, anyway. So, um, so then, you know, from there he, uh, went to, um, oh gosh, Fort, uh, we were there last year, you guys, what was it? Fort Fort by you, by you. Yeah. Yes. Went to Benning. Benning. Yeah. And then from Benning up to Camp Tacoa. Right. In the mountains of North Georgia, where he started to, you know, prepare to get ready to go off to Europe, um, would have went to England and prepared for this, the largest invasion in human history. Most of the listeners who have any degree of military experience knows there's some very famous generals on the American side of the war as well, the allied side of the war. But there's a few really, really famous soldiers And your father, Don Malarkey, may be one of the most famous soldiers of the war just because of how well he was depicted in the miniseries Band of Brothers. I'm going to fast forward. I'm not going to go over the parachute jump into France uh, before the Allied forces even hit the beaches. I'm not going to go over the fighting in the hedgerows, but both fathers end up going to battle against each other in some of the most brutal city to city field to field you know combat in really the history of the human race in the area of bastogne or as the french would call it bastonia um marianne why don't you go first and just uh let the listeners know a little bit of You've had the chance to hear your father describe this. It's been depicted very well in the book in the miniseries, but can you go over a little bit of what your father experienced in those city fights, Caraton, Bastonia, other areas like that? I, I think for me, the the one that he talked about, <clears throat> excuse me, the most was uh, Bastogne because that was, in his opinion, the most meaningful battle that that totally changed the course of the war for them. So what I would say is taking it years later, when I had the opportunity to go to Bastogne with my dad, 
in um, 2001, we were over there for the world premiere party for Band of Brothers miniseries. We took a day and we went up to Bastogne. And when he walked into the woods, he, he stopped and he put his hand up on a, on a tree and he was getting very confused, kind of disoriented. And so I walked up to him and said, dad, what's wrong? Are you okay? By the way, I'm filming the whole thing. So I have it all, all on film. And he was standing there seeing everything that happened wow. there. It was all, all the, all the visions, all the impressions that he had had of the war were coming back all at one time. Now that wasn't his first time back there. That was probably, I don't know, maybe his fourth or fifth time back there. Uh-huh. But I think having my mom there and having me there, it just all of a sudden hit him harder. And he, he, he said when, when they were in Bastogne and, you know, the coldest winter on record that they had had, yeah, they're wearing sure. their, they're wearing their summer gear. But, and he said he felt so good when he came out of that battle, even though he didn't eat well, didn't have enough water, you know, just, you know, not, not great conditions, but he said, I felt the most healthy when I came out of there. And uh, yeah, which is, you know, it's really interesting because a lot of guys, you know, they, obviously they were all suffering, you know, they had trench foot and they had, you know, bladder infections, urinary tract infections, you know, I mean, all this crazy stuff going on to them. And, and he said he was definitely um, better off when he came out of there. And, and another thing that he also talks a lot about when, when they were in Market Garden, and he talks about the, the Dutch and how they um, would cook for them. And they would, they would bring it through the lines and somehow get, get food to them. And they just really appreciated the kindness of, of yeah. the Dutch. The French, the French were the same way. They were very, very kind to them. Obviously, they were very happy that they were, uh, that they were there and helping them in the, in the war. But I, I think that's, for me, that's, that's really the best way to describe it. He, um, you know, he went through some really hard times there. You know, he lost his, his best friend and he lost um, another good friend, Alex Pincola. He saw, he saw other friends die. And then he also went through um, losing, you know, when, when Buck Compton got pulled off and he and Buck Compton were, were very close. And so it was, it was definitely a difficult, difficult time of the war for him. And, and that's probably when he, that time of year, whenever it would come around, that would be the time of year that he would get, he would get really quiet. Instead of having one glass of scotch at night, yeah. he might have two. So, it, you know, always around the holidays, always around the first of the year. And I didn't understand when right. I was young, you know, yeah. so it was, it was something my mom had to tell me, just, just let him be. <laughs> well, the miniseries in the book describes, you know, the D-Day invasion. It describes the house-to-house fighting. It describes the Battle of the Bulge in Bastogne and the Ardennes Forest really well. It doesn't talk about, and I'm glad you brought up, Operation Market Garden, that immense military operation in Holland 
to try to get to Nijmegen and secure that bridgehead across the Wall River that ends up becoming a bridge too far and the movie A Bridge Too Far. But wow, your father was involved in all of it. I'll never forget Matthias Volker listening to you two tell a story about your father and how the battle impacted him and what he saw. In fact, some of the, you know, killing that he saw that stuck with him. So can either one or both of you describe your father's experiences? Before we get to this encounter, the whole reason we're doing this episode is the encounter years later. But I want people to understand what you, both of your fathers went through before we get to this encounter. So Matthias, Volker, either one of you, can you talk about the um, kind of some of the things your father saw when he was on that Western front? Mm. So um, what he always um, told us as the most important or the, the, the most fierce situation that he encountered was uh, is let's say his baptism of fire was that first battle after the start of the uh, Ardennes offensive that was uh, December 16th they had been hiding in on the German uh, border and uh, so they were surprised for four days the Germans could advance and the the American troops that were on the Belgium and the Luxembourg side of the border weren't ready for that. So they were they were not well they taken by surprise, not well educated and not very experienced. So the first four days uh, the Germans were able to to advance and it was only a problem with the with the tanks and the with the the equipment through the narrow winding yeah. roads right. that sometimes there was a traffic jam and they they um, they couldn't advance as, far, as fast as they wanted to. And they were, they were lucky because it was uh, bad weather. Oh, yeah, yeah. The American Air Force couldn't fly. Right, right. I want to jump in for just a second here and remind the listeners what happens for those four days is actually un incredibly successful. Nobody expected Germany to be able to push back the Allies so quickly, so far. The fog cover made it almost impossible for either one of them to use air, air cover or air war. So um, what became known as the Battle of the Bulge is the German forces just pulling off the unimaginable and pushing back the allies to the point that it looks like they're going to get cut off and totally surrounded. That's in your father's right in the middle of what many historians will consider the most improbable but successful, if not, uh, you know, uh, Every, everybody assumed this was insane and it's not going to work. And there was a moment where it almost worked to perfection. That's what your father's involved in during the Ardennes offensive. Sorry to interrupt. Keep going. Yeah, yeah, but that was very important because then uh, for four days, the Germans for the first time, for the first time ever for our dad, yeah, so he had been retreating for, for months and months. So and now so they, they, they were and, and kind of enthusiastic. Yeah. So marching forward and all... American soldiers coming up like this. They, the they, found, they found, and my dad told us uh, they found the American trucks filled with food, and the Germans had bad, very bad food at that time. And so some, somehow the attack stopped for a moment because they had to eat the corned beef and, and 
and open the kit, the, 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 the tins, and, and so yeah, and then yeah. chocolate cigarettes. So, so all what they what they they find on their, those plaques. So, so um, and they were somehow enthusiastic and said, yeah. "Okay, we're going on to Antwerp and we will win the war for four days." But four then, days. Uh, then came I think December nineteenth. That was when when Don uh, they were. Not jumping into Bastogne, but they were sent overnight right. on on trucks and uh, and uh, with gl the gliders. So the the 101st Airborne was sent because um, the the Americans just realized we have to stop that advance. And so the German side, our dad's company, they hadn't noticed that something had changed uh -huh. from 19th to the 20th of December and. The, the fiercest battle our dad always told us about was on December 20th. The morning they, they uh, spotted a village and they wanted to, that was, if Bastogne was a clock, then it was at five o'clock. Mm -hmm. So southeast of Bastogne, very close to Bastogne, the little village called Marvi. And uh, so uh, our dad was a, a, as a messenger going back and forth on a, on a um, motorcycle between units and transferring messages. And when he came back to his unit, his, his captain said, uh, good, you're here, good, you're back, uh, Private Engelbert, then you can go on this assault with us. Right. So they saw the little village there, and uh, that was the last village before, the, uh, before they would have yeah. entered Bastogne. After Bobby was Bastogne. Yeah, so that was just, I don't know, two or three miles southeast of, of Bastogne. But uh, the Germans didn't yeah, have yeah. the time to do any recon. Yeah. They didn't know what had happened yeah. uh, during the night. They, and they, so, they, as I said, they were so enthusiastic. They said, "Okay, let's go on. Mm -hmm. uh, we'll get them." But they, they were taken in, in half tracks, you know, right. in German Schützenpanzer, you know, half tracks and four and, and four, four tanks, Mark, Mark four, four uh, and a lot of a lot of half tracks. Ten half so that it was yeah. ten ten vehicles. Yeah. Uh, Four tanks in the front, and then three half tracks in the second row, two more half tracks in the third row, and one last half track at the very end, and that was the the commander's uh, half track. And my dad was our dad was riding as a messenger to the captain. He was riding in that last vehicle, and so advancing towards the village, um, they started firing at the village, and they they destroyed uh, houses there. Two uh, uh, father with his daughter were were killed within the first minutes when a, a house was hit. Um, so they advanced, but then all of a sudden hell broke loose because from their right side, uh, Sherman tanks had uh -huh. taken position during the night. There was a roadblock, and, and, there, and so yeah. they were and they were on a bit of a higher ground. So they were shooting down into the flank of the, the German tanks and, and half-tracks. And so that was a real disaster for them. And uh, our dad said that um, he could hear the, the tock, 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 tock of the machine gun firing on the side of the, uh, the half-track. And the, the paint on the inside of the half-track came off. And I think it was a terrible noise. And sometimes they, uh, the half-tracks were were open to open at the so top, sometimes yeah. they could get get up and and peek above the the railing or how do you call it so but then they they stayed down and uh, 
I think that was um, when our dad said he, he realized it's about life and death now. And uh, so they this assault was, was stopped because nine of the other uh, vehicles, all other nine vehicles were stopped, were, uh, were um, shot and ex exploded. Uh, uh, and some of the half-tracks just couldn't move any, any further. And the soldiers had to get out and, and run by foot towards the village. But uh, our dad being in the last um, half-track, the commander at the end realized um, he was the only vehicle that could move, still move. And so he decided, no, we, we won't follow them into destruction. And he gave the order, turn around and go back to the wood where they came from. So um, that was the reason why our dad survived that attack. And I think it was about a hundred soldiers in, in 10, uh, 10 vehicles. Mm -hmm. And he was among the 10 that survived. Mm -hmm. uh, but the, it was a complete catastrophe that so. the whole company was was done. Yeah. Only one one half track left. Yeah. And this was true on both sides of the war out of, uh, you know, hundreds of men, a handful of them survived. And the fact that both of your fathers made it through the war alive is just nothing short of the hand of God. I want to point out something for the listeners. There were several really intense battles in World War II on the Eastern Front, especially around um, Stalingrad. Um, there were incredibly intense battles in the South Pacific from island to island. But what you two are describing right now, many people consider the most intense battle of the European Front with the American forces, the um, British forces in the European front of World War II, and your fathers are on opposite sides of it. Obviously, what happens to your fathers leaves a deep impact on them, and we don't have time to go over the rest of the war or how they uh, were impacted by it. But the reason we're doing this episode is I listened to the two of you, uh, two families, who weren't there on the battlefield, but you were describing with detail like the like your fathers were, like it was coming directly from your father, what this battle was like. And you two were doing it right next to each other with this incredible relationship with each other, the Malarkey family and the Engelbert family. And I, I sat back and scratched my head and just said, how did this happen? How is it possible that two families from two different continents on opposite sides of World War II would be as close as you two families are. So I'll never forget you, the three of you describing what happened when your fathers met each other again at a reunion many years later. Marianne, you've already said your father went back and forth there several times, but I would like Volker or Matthias, either one of you to describe what it took to get your father to go back to France years after the war, why does he even go there when he meets Don Malarkey for the first time after the war is over with many years later? 
I think Matthias was a, it's, it's your yeah, turn. Yeah. You were, um, you were there from the beginning. So that was uh, 60 years after the war, and then it I'm was gonna, the, uh, the on, anniversary of one more time for the listener. 60 years after, <laughs> the, war years years after went, the war, your yeah. father is finally convinced to go back to where he fought the war. Yeah. Sorry, keep so going. He, yeah, he he got a he got an invitation because he was on a on a mailing list. Uh, of a, a Dutch journalist, and this journalist uh, was in contact with the uh, American troops, uh, and so the 60th anniversary of the Battle of the Bulge was coming closer. That would have, was December 2004, and and the American side uh, they knew six veterans from the United States: uh, Compton, Don Malaki, Shifty Powers, and and Wild Bill. They were coming. And the American side, or one guy on the American side, and the active soldier uh, that was organizing the, the gathering, uh, his name is Billy Maloney, and he had the idea, uh, wouldn't it be a good idea to also invite German veterans to that meeting? When the American veterans come to celebrate the 60th anniversary, why don't we try to find German veterans to, to join the the celebration, or just meet in peace, mm. and uh, and it was. It turned out that um, yeah, it was. Our dad received a, a phone call and, a, and an email with an invitation. Would you like to come? And he was very very reluctant. And yeah, I was going to say, I already know this part of the story. But when he first got the invitation, of course, your dad is not really thinking about going. What convinced him to go back to this reunion? 60 years later. And I think we, we, we told him, Dad, you, you're suffering your whole life from your what you made trauma. Sure, the trauma from the war. And now you have a chance to, to meet somebody who was, your, was a former enemy or maybe it, it makes a change or mm -hmm. so. He wasn't convinced. And uh, so we have to, to take him and say, come yeah. on, come on, come on. And yeah. so... <laughs> It happened. Yeah, and we, we promised, and of course we wouldn't let him go all by himself. So yeah, we right. said that that's a once in a lifetime chance. You have to go, and don't worry, we'll be we'll go with you, and we'll translate if if necessary. Uh, and uh, so then he finally, and our our mom also said um, she wasn't willing to go with him because yeah. she was also very. Uh, she she experienced they were all traumatized that yeah. generation uh, from the war she, and she couldn't really uh, she didn't like or she couldn't really talk about yeah. that and so she was not able herself to go with him but she um, motivated us Volker and me to go with that so make him uh, use that opportunity right. and so we went to Bastogne and. Uh, yeah, and, and it was it was great. It was at the end of the day, he was also convinced it was a, a yeah. wonderful yeah. idea. But it uh, in the beginning it, didn't it start out that way, right? So easy. Yeah. It really yeah. it took a, a lot of courage to to go into uh, yeah. the the pub where um, we first met the Americans uh, the evening before, and uh, and. The first, I don't know if, uh, yeah, let's go into to that one detail. The first thing uh, that really happened when uh, Dad uh, and me 
you came the next day. Yeah, the next so I, shows, yeah. uh, first evening it was uh, Fritz and me, and we entered that bar, uh, the pub in near Frankfurt, and the Americans were already there, the six veterans, and they had the, the, the young soldiers uh, taking autographs, and 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 we realized, wow, that's really like movie stars. They yeah. were like movie stars, yeah. which we. We had no idea, but uh, the first interaction, we sat down, Fritz and, and me, and had a beer, And uh, but it took a few minutes till uh, the first interaction happened, and uh, the first thing that happened was Wild Bill looking at Fritz and <laughs> uh, saying, oh, Fritz, our German soldier, uh, and uh, we said, Yes, or maybe I said, I think I said, yes, uh, my dad was a, a German soldier in the, in the Wehrmacht. He also fought in the Battle of the Bulge. And the next thing Wild Bill said was, oh, Fritz, uh, you can count yourself lucky. We All didn't right. meet 60 years ago because otherwise I would have yeah. <laughs> killed you. So. Well, I want, I want Marianne to describe what happens next, but I, I need to narrate something for the audience for just a second. It is extremely unusual for two opposite sides of the battle to ever meet up. It doesn't matter if it's six weeks or 60 years later, it's very, very unusual. And in your father's case, in Fritz's case, because so much of the German culture and German society was invested in winning that war, after the war was over with, it wasn't just the trauma of all of the death and the, the destruction, but it was a dream of for Germany that was absolutely ripped away from you. So the what it took to convince your dad to go to Bastogne 60 years later is no small endeavor. I want people to hear that. But now what I want them to hear is what your father did, Marianne, when he met Fritz and how this relationship started because your father did something that a lot of American veterans would have never done. So would you describe what happens when Fritz and your father meet together in that pub? Yes. So at just I wasn't there when they first met. So Matthias was there. And so everything that I know is from Matthias and my dad. But when, when, uh, Bill Garnier had said that he would have killed Fritz if it was 60 years, you know, they were there 60 years ago together. Uh, Fritz backed his chair up and he was not comfortable and he, he felt like he probably should go. Of course and not. And so, yep. sure. you know, Matthias, dad, we're going to stay. Let's, let's listen. Let's, let's sit here. And then my dad could tell that he was not comfortable. And so my dad took his beer and stood up and welcomed Fritz into the band of brothers. And All right. hold on. I need everybody who's listening to hear this. You've got <laughs> the guys from Easy Company that are back together again in France, having a reunion. Fritz is there, but very much on the sidelines. And your dad is hanging out with his buddies, his paratrooper buddies from World War II when he gets up and describe that one more time. He stood up and held his beer up and said, welcome to the family. Welcome to the band of brothers. So it was, you know, it was very, I mean, that's, that's totally like my dad, that, that is the way he was. And not that I would say that Fritz is an underdog, but in that situation, yeah. he was the underdog. Sure. Um, 
And my dad was always that way with people. If you were the underdog, he was going to be the one that was going to help you up. He was going to be the one to give you a hand, uh, whatever it took to make to make you successful. Um, and so I was not surprised that he did that. Um, I, I, it's something that is, um, you know, obviously very proud of him for doing that because he's doing that in front of all of his comrades, which I'm sure that, you know, a lot of courage right there. Yeah, it did. And not all of them probably felt the same way at that moment. I think later on they, they did, um, welcome Fritz and he was definitely, um, not an outsider and he was definitely not an underdog anymore. He was definitely, um, one of them. Hey, after that, he, the next day he was sitting between, uh, Babe Heffron and, and, uh, Wild Bill and they gave him a, so yeah really later they really they all accepted him yeah. and uh, yeah. uh, and it was the, the souvenirs are uh, that received from wild bill he's got a uh, how do you call it a coaster which you put under a beer glass yeah. so bill rode uh, to fritz Airborne love always. Also, right. that is really like after that was he wrote that on the let's say two or three hours after his first remark with the so that it it really changed and it for also for Bill and probably the the others it it took to meet face to face and see that that. That's not a monster. Yeah, uh, so yeah. they're all, they were all humans and they discovered, uh, they had more in common than they mm -hmm. probably thought before mm -hmm. that meeting. Mm -hmm. Anybody who's listening to this, who's been to war knows exactly what you two, what your families are describing right now. But there are lots of people listening that have never been to war. They don't understand just how dehumanizing and how, um, easy it is to turn the enemy into something that you never want to be around for the rest of your life. That's almost a necessity at some points in order for you to be able to emotionally and psychologically survive the trauma of what you're experiencing in war. So it doesn't matter if it's 60 years later, many veterans want nothing to do with the war itself, even with their own buddies, let alone the people that were on the opposite side fighting against you. I, I'm telling, I'm saying this because the fact that Don would get up, walk across the room when his buddies are sitting there looking at Fritz and there's still obviously got to be some hard feelings and walk over there with a beer and invite him to become part of the family, air quotes, part of the band of brothers is nothing short of incredible. I heard this story for the first time, firsthand from you three in Switzerland, and I was so moved by it that I am thrilled somebody, Bob Welch, decided we've got to put this story into print. I'm also really glad that Bob Welch entitled the book, Saving My Enemy, because what I want people in this episode to hear is what happened to your father, Fritz, after that encounter, how much that conversation and then his relationship with Don changed his life. 
So either one of you, can you describe what happened to Fritz after meeting Don, after becoming, after getting invited into the Band of Brothers, although he was on the opposite side of the uh, the Battle of the Bulge? I think he, he first he couldn't believe what, what was happening. And yeah. On the next day, they had a meeting in the, in the forest. Bozak. in, in yeah. the stone. And uh, that was a special meeting called there were children from Belgian children from Belgian schools and they were greeting the veterans they had painted drawings and peace uh, la paix and freedom yeah. and my father that was another problem for him he said what will the Belgian people do if they see me I was one of the of the guys who, who burned their houses and shot their houses and, yeah. and killed their families and will they say fuck off Nazi or so and, and, and will spit at me and he was the kids go to the American veterans or to German veterans, and he, he, my father was it was crying, crying, crying yeah. most whole of the day, yeah. most time. That was very special, special to him. And and all in all, when when he came back, he had yeah, we we, we noticed he found some peace. He found some 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 peace. Huh? Mm. Yeah, your father, like everyone who was fighting on both sides of the war, struggled with what they saw, with what they did. But in your father's case, I've just mentioned it already, dealt with the shame of buying into the Nazi, uh, you know, Nazi party lie and then learning what he really was fighting for afterwards. Um, but now I want to turn the conversation back to Marianne for a second. You're, you've already described your father as the kind of guy who always roots for the underdog. So he's going to get up and hand Fritz a beer. But it could have ended right there. For most people, it would have ended right there. Why did your two fathers become so close, really, for the rest of their lives? What happened next that caused your two fathers to become so close that if you're watching this on YouTube, you can see right behind Matthias and Volker, the picture of these two guys hanging out together like their buds, even though they were on the opposite side of the war and ideologically opposite sides of the world for 50, 60 years. Marianne, how did this relationship between Don and Fritz uh, grow so tight? Partially, I think it's because they each understood each other um, on a whole different level than than like obviously if you talk to me or if you talk to somebody else when you have another soldier there and and they were together in a pub by themselves that evening that, that they first met with with Matthias of course Matthias was doing the translating, translating. Yeah. yeah and so um you know they both felt guilty for things that happened in the war and my dad was really really struggling with guilt for the amount of killing that he did and and Fritz had his own guilt that he was dealing with and and so what was so interesting to me is I don't I don't really know how Fritz was because I wasn't, you know, it wasn't mm -hmm. his child, but they, they put their hands on each other on the table. And, and that is not like my dad, <laughs> my dad doesn't yeah. do, you know, right. you know, like physical contact like that with another man, you know? So it was something that if, if he did that, there was something there that something they special, both, right? 
Yeah. It, and what what ended up happening those next few days, it, when I hear about it, when I think about it, it was almost like they were two college guys that were, you know, just out having a good time together. And, and there was no, uh, no, uh, I can't think of the word, but, you know, they weren't mad at each other for no, what had sure. happened. You know, that, that night in the, in the pub, they, they gave each other forgiveness for what they did during the war. And, and that I think is something that my dad didn't even know that he was looking for. And his, his main concern when he got older was that he wanted to make sure he was going to go to heaven. And he really did not think he would go to heaven. He thought he was going to go to hell because of killing people. All of the killing that he did. Yeah. mm -hmm. And so, and so for them to sit there together and, and give each other forgiveness for their part that they had in a war is, is unthinkable. I, I mean, I just don't even know how, how you do that. You think about somebody that you've been mad at that has crossed you right, and yeah. done something wrong. I, I don't know if I could forgive them for what they did, you know, but my dad, you know, I, he was, you know, like we said, it was 60 years later, he had been carrying this guilt around forever and he wanted it to go away. And, and Fritz did that. Fritz, Fritz gave him the the ability to give forgiveness and 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 then for my dad to accept forgiveness was from Fritz was just was huge the title of this book could not have been better saving my enemy is what happened to both of your fathers 60 years later it has really nothing to do with the battle of the bulge and the bullets flying on both sides of the war it's what happens to your fathers matthias volker your dad starts to act like a different man after meeting don and starts to become a very different man than he maybe would have been if he'd never went back to that reunion 60 years later. Can you describe a little bit of how this changed your father? Um, yeah, it was really, um, when, you, when we look at photos from uh, before that meeting and after, before that meeting, it was really hard. We don't have many photos of our dad Fritz where he smiles. So he... he Sometimes okay, and he, after having a drink or yeah. a beer, sometimes yeah. he he could also he was humorous, but he was not an outgoing and not, not a funny person. But the photos we have from the the three meetings with um, so first after that first meeting, there were two more meetings with uh, with Don, and then the third meeting we got to know Marianne. That was in in, uh, in Bastogne. Then again, the third meeting in two thousand and seven, but. The photos of all these meetings, you can always see <laughs> our dad is smiling from ear to ear. Mm -hmm. uh, and it was, he was so, so relaxed that we could tell um, on the way back after the first meeting, after coming back from Bastogne uh, in December, then he was, yeah, he was really, um, my wife also noticed the, the change in him when we arrived on that. I think we, we were in Bastogne on a Friday and came back on a Saturday. I don't know. So the next day, when we entered the house here, 
your uh, mother recognized was a, a different, a different person. man. So it had changed that you could really tell that was that gesture, that that uh, that hug, the handshake he had been longing for for so so yeah. such a long time. And um, so that is, um, I don't know if, if that's possible to see. He yeah. was um, to one of the the drawings, the kids. So we took. 20 or 23 of them uh, Fritz received and we took them home. And so the kids already, and they were prepared. Uh, the originals are bigger. This is a No, this is, this this is, is, okay. this is the original. Okay. Uh, and uh, the, but the kids, they, they drew three flags, the German flag, the Belgian flag, and the American yeah. flag. And uh -huh. that was something that our dad just could not... Uh, Understand that he was included in so, and they said, uh, "Yeah, no more war and all together." And that one, one uh, had like a was uh, he he was already painting two soldiers in in different, in uniforms, different uniforms, yeah, one green, uh -huh. one red, shaking shaking hands, and uh, so it was that was the gesture that that really changed his. His mind and his whole setting, and from that day on, I think we we never had a family gathering where he yeah. started crying. Right? Yeah. It was, yeah. Yeah. but before, yeah, often, uh, like Julia's confirmation. Yeah. Maybe yeah. you could tell. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, when when my uh, oldest daughter had the confirmation, when she was about forty, we are um, evangelisch, that means uh, Protestant. Protestant. Mm -hmm. and, uh, we had celebration in my house, and we're sitting at a coffee table. Um, and my dad hold the speech, and uh, very soon he he started speaking about the war. And he said, "When I was in your age, forty years old, I was in the Hitler Jugend, and, uh -huh. and and started crying and couldn't talk anymore. And all the people, it was a, a funny, it was a funny party until that." And so the 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 mood was gone. Everybody was thinking, "Oh, what what's going on?" And so he he couldn't speak for uh, for a minute or so. And, yeah. and and my daughter was so what's what's go what's wrong with with grandpa? And so and that often happened yeah. on on family Until occasions. So that he he got in that mood and and uh, and that stopped after after, after yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah. So after. Meeting Don and the, the veterans for the first time, it totally changed. When uh, war was uh, one of the topics in a, in, a, in a discussion, he was proud to tell the story that he had been to Bastogne, uh, to the battlefield again, and that he had met a former enemy, and that they had shaken hands and uh, forgiven. I don't know if he did he talk about forgiveness. I think he felt it, but yeah, yeah. maybe he, he wouldn't have expressed yeah, yeah. it that way. Uh, but, but it was important that, that everybody uh, they could ex 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 explain what what happened. This happened to me. This happened to you. And I I think they understood mm. without words. Yeah, they couldn't. My, my father was not was not uh, his English was not very good, but he could a little bit. But I think they don't need too many words. I think they yeah. understood without words. Just yeah, yeah. and he was. When he said, my dad was never a hugger. He no. <laughs> didn't, uh, didn't hug me or didn't Matthias too much, but 
and when I saw him hugging Don, yeah. 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 yeah, when you saw Very him hugging, a wonderful yeah. picture yeah. of uh, yeah. 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 these. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that's yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah. There you that's go. It. There's a good picture for those of you who are looking online of Fritz and Don hugging each other, even though both of them would have grown up in a very different world where grown men didn't show that kind of affection. No, and and look at their look at their heads are snuggled into each other. Yeah, their heads are hugging on each other like they're best friends, like they haven't seen each just, other in like they're college fr or college roommates. Yeah, it's um, my favorite. It's my favorite picture. Really, yeah, that's a beautiful yeah. shot, Marion. I want to I want to narrate something real quickly, and then we'll we'll uh, kind of bring this conversation to a close. I don't know if I told you three this, but I had the chance as an army officer to take about thirty five army rangers with me to the 65th anniversary of D-Day. And we were kind of the official representation of the Ranger force that was in the European theater. While we were there, of course, most of the big units of the allies were represented, but there was also a German force that was represented there. And we all took part, all of the units, both sides of the war in official ceremonies. But even after the ceremonies were over with and people got uh, you know, out of their uniform and changed their clothes and went to a pub and gathered around a table, even then the Germans were on one side of the room and the rest of the allies on another side of the room. So when I was standing under a tree in Andreas's farm, listening to the three of you tell this story of your fathers, it blew me away. In fact, I'll just be honest, for a part of the conversation, I was like, no way, this doesn't <laughs> happen. This couldn't happen. Nothing like this happens. But the more that I heard, the more that I was just absolutely in awe of both of your fathers, the way that they let their guard down, and you've already used this language, Marianne, forgave one another. And it, this isn't about winning or losing the war. This is about two men that are still struggling 60 years later with what they saw and what they did, and they need somebody to unload to. And they find the most unusual people imaginable. They find each other to unload to and become fast friends. So when I first heard this conversation, I have been, I was in awe of it. And to this day, this is one of those conversations that still sends goosebumps up my arm. I stood on the beaches of Normandy, France on June 6th, 65 years later, it made the hair on my arm stand up. And when I hear about Don and Fritz becoming such good friends after the war, it still makes the hair on my arm stand up because this just never happens ever. So man, you two had the privilege of seeing a side of your father that maybe you never would have saw if it wasn't for Fritz or if it wasn't for Don. And I kind of want to wrap up like this. At the end of this episode, I'm going to give away a free ebook copy of Saving My Enemy, Bob Welch's description of your fathers and what happened and how their lives were changed after this relationship. But I'll send it to uh, Fritz and, or to Matthias and uh, Volker first, would you describe just a little bit of how much your life was touched by Don? And then Marianne, I want you to do the same thing about Fritz. Yeah, for, for us, um, it was because we, we, as the kids of a, of a veteran, um, 
until then maybe I wouldn't have been able to to say how much it was in ourselves and and as our in us as kids mm -hmm. how much of the grief of our father of our parents we incorporated yeah, how much of that was was in, in us you lived in the home under that right 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 and so it was also a, a, such a big relief for for me or for us it's um and i hadn't i hadn't really expect such a uh, such a change that was way beyond my my wildest dreams that it would have this impact we only thought it will help it will improve the situation but right. it was a complete uh, a turnaround so for us it was the, the meetings with our, our father with our parents they were yeah they were also much um the, the mood was um very very much light it was yeah. lighter yeah. Yeah. to to be together yeah. and because we had um sharing these wonderful memories uh that that nobody could take that away from from us and so that was always with us when we got together after that first day and that when the 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 second meeting in uh in, in Illusheim in Bavaria was coming closer um we we didn't have to convince our dad to go he was right yeah, away yeah, yeah, yeah. so it was um, and my wife then joined us so we were four when we met for the uh, for the second time so it was really yeah it was like like a dream come true yeah. for me yeah. to see our dad in such a such a such a mood and mm -hmm. to to see that mm -hmm. amount of, of change in him and mm -hmm. so we we tried to keep that memory alive in him as much as possible because yeah, yeah. people tend to forget uh, and and uh, yeah about the great things that have that we have experienced yeah, yeah. and so that was sometimes I really was afraid that he could ever forget wow because with the ups and downs yeah. um, sometimes it's it's hard to to stay focused on those great moments and that was one of the I can honestly say one of the, the yeah. greatest moments in my life yeah, yeah. too, to and, and to be a witness of that yeah, happening. And, and, and remember when uh, Don wrote, he would come to Europe with his family. Yeah. And Fritz, Fritz said, oh, uh, "We have to go there without with our family." And we <laughs> said, "You come." And and so Matthias was there and his wife and. Me and two of my daughters and mm -hmm. my my schwiegersohn um, yeah, son-in-law, son-in-law, and so we all come. And, and for our father was absolutely important that from our family enough people would be there too. Yeah, yeah. We don't know how many Americans would come, but we said we go there, we go there. Everybody who was able to go, we go there. No? Yeah, yeah, it was really. Well, uh, and I, I have to interrupt because sure. at, at this moment, so this is 2007. Uh, we pull in in one of the big coach buses and my dad sees Fritz and his family standing there waiting for us. And he stands up. There they are. There they are. That is awesome. He was so excited. And I and I'm we we hadn't met yet. So, you know, I wouldn't know, you know, who they were. So but he was just so excited because he, you know, he didn't know if they would actually come. You know, it was like maybe they might not show up. Well, Marianne, when I first met you three, you three were like 
great friends together and it just blew my mind. So could you describe for everybody just how your life was touched by Fritz as well? So first I need to say thank you to Jeff, because if, if you had not said that day, you need to write a book about this before someone else does. It's, it's that big of a deal to me. It really yeah. was. Yeah. And we had, we had no idea if this could be a book. And so when we came home and, and I called Bob Welch and we met for lunch and I explained it to him and, and he said, well, can I have Jeff's phone number? I need to, I would like to call him and talk to him about what he saw. And at that point, he was kind of lukewarm on writing the story. But after he talked to Jeff, he calls back and he said, I'm in, uh, but we can't start for a few months. And I said, that's fine. That gives us some time to, you know, get things figured out. But for for me, um, how, how it has changed my life is two two things. One, it changed my life to as a daughter to see my dad be able to have some comfort yeah. in his end of life yeah. to know that that he was forgiven because that's that was huge for right. him and i would have done anything to make that happen but i had no idea until it happened, I had no idea what needed to happen. So it presented itself to us and it was very uh, impactful for him, but also for me because I was the one that was with him day to day after my right. mother died, Yeah, having, having to live with his sadness. I mean, I just, I can't explain how, how sad he was and, and I wanted that all to go away. I just wanted him to be happy. And uh, it just seemed like as he got older, it was even more, um, it's even more difficult for him. I think that because of, of being afraid that he was going to hell. But the on the second side of that, the the benefit for me was, was to meet, um, a German soldier learn, learn obviously one one story, one part of the the story, but also to have have gained um, such amazing friends as yeah. I have in Volker and Matthias, and and they, even though they live million miles away, <laughs> they they always you know if we can make something work to meet up you know we make it work. We were just together in Bastogne last last month. Mm -hmm. And, uh, so the, the thing that it, and like we were talking about with they, them growing up with their dad, you know, they, they have the German side, I'm growing up with my dad on the American side. And that's, you hear how bad the Germans were. And then you learn that not all Germans right. were bad. Right. And then it's the same thing though you know, yes, Americans did some great things and they saved, you know, Europe and, you know, everything, but they, um, there were some, there were some bad soldiers. There were some, there's bad Americans. So it was, it's just nice to, to hear and to be with people that not only appreciate my dad's side, 
but they have so much humility on their dad's side. Mm-hmm. And, and we have just kind of that friendship has just grown and, and tightened more than, than uh, any of us, I think could have ever realized, you know, how, how it would be. So I was going to say for my dad, you know, to be able to, to end life and have that be a part of his yeah. story was great. Well, I never got a chance to meet either one of your fathers, but I feel like I got to know them through the three of you. That to me was a gift. And I want to say thank you, the three of you for letting me get a chance to know your fathers. But I'm even more impressed by your friendship as you both or all three of you just described it, the relationship that your families have to one another. Now you travel around the world to see each <laughs> other, even though you weren't personally involved in it, the, the, the impact that Don and Fritz's relationship had on all of your families is just stunning. And I hope when people wrap this episode up with me today, they will think just how incredible this saving my enemy relationship between Don Malarkey and Fritz Engelbert was and how much it's still in 2023 impacting families today because of the simple but very unusual or very rare gift of forgiveness that your fathers gave one another. So I want to say it one more time. Thank you, all three of you, for joining me from across two continents and many different time zones to be part of this episode. Thanks for sharing this story with the rest of the audience. Thanks for inviting us. Thanks for having us. It's a pleasure. Yeah. Yeah. I hope the hair was standing up on your arms as you listened to what happened to their fathers after Don Malarkey got up walked across the room and handed Fritz a beer and said, welcome to the family. Welcome to the band of brothers and how much their father's lives and even these three lives were touched by that moment. Hey, if you're wrestling with some stuff that you've gone through in the past, if you're struggling with forgiving somebody, why don't you let this episode be the catalyst that causes you to get up walk across the room and go talk to somebody, go have a conversation with somebody so that you don't spend the next 60 years in turmoil on the inside like both Don and Fritz did. Thanks for joining me for this episode. If you stumbled across this broadcast for the first time and you really like what you're seeing in YouTube or love what you're hearing on your favorite podcast platform, why don't you go ahead and subscribe? If you haven't done it already, why don't you also follow us on social media where we give you updates and more content from the unbeatable audience. You're going to find some pretty amazing people. If you just go search for at unbeatable podcast on pretty much any of those social media platforms out there, you're going to find people like Wayne Merka. Wayne is our fan of the week this week. And Wayne, I just want to say you're amazing. That's why we call you our fan of the week this week. Thanks for tuning in and listening to this episode. If you are struggling, if you need a little pick-me-up, if you're uh, overwhelmed and need some motivation to get you through some challenges, if you're facing difficulties and you need a little help, 
being unbeatable, I got a totally free resource. I call it the Unbeatable Army Survival Guide. It's a PDF, it's totally free. I'll give it to you if you'll just simply go over and become part of the Unbeatable Army. Just go ahead and check it out at unbeatablearmy.com. Thanks for joining me for this very special Veterans Day Saving My Enemies broadcast. See you next week. These stories of triumph over adversity will help you handle your toughest days in life and become unbeatable.